seen the typical African parents, African parents, I was like, African parents have gone through some shit and they don't want you to go through some shit. That's their coping mechanism. So when we put it within the context of how have they healed or how have they attempted to heal, because again, nobody really wants to harm themselves. They would try to heal the best way they know how. And at the time, it was probably silent because silence kept them alive. Hello health champions, welcome back to another episode of The Taboo Doctor, previously known as A Slice of Health. This is the health podcast where no subject is off the table and we answer all the taboo health questions that you've always been afraid to ask. Join me and my friends from all over the world as we demystify healthcare and wellness. It is our aim to turn you into a health champion wherever you go as you slice health fact away from health fiction. Make sure you tell a friend or two to join the revolution. Follow us on social media and also watch the recordings of all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Taboo Doctor. Don't forget that this episode in no way replaces advice from your own healthcare worker or physician. Please be reminded that all the views shared on the podcast reflects the personal and professional views of our guests. I hope you enjoyed the episode. See you on the other side. Hello health champions, welcome back to another episode. On this episode, we're going to be talking about our mental health and I'm sure you guys already know that is something I love to talk about because it affects all areas of our health and our well-being and how we are feeling in our minds and souls also affects how our body responds and it also affects our physical health and ailments as well. On the 20th of October 2020, peaceful protesters were murdered and massacred at the Lekki Toll Gate by men wearing military guards. There were so many people watching live when the incident happened. So many of us have cried, so many have mourned. Many have described the feeling of being numb and anxious. And on today's episode, we are joined by Ani Jibe Ojo, who is a clinical psychologist. She's also a poet and a writer. And she's going to be talking to us about how this trauma affects our mental health and things that we can do in practical ways to support ourselves and also to support those around us who are suffering in such significant ways. And hopefully we'll also be able to talk about the intergenerational trauma that our parents and our grandparents might have also faced in the times when they lived through the military regimes that they lived through as well, and how we can also support them as this reactivates trauma that they've also experienced. Welcome so much to the episode and thank you so much for joining us, Ami. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So welcome to the episode, Anu. Tell us a lot about yourself. Uh, my name is Anu, and I'm very particular about adding the extra A in my name because I'm extra. <laughs> I, am, <laughs> I am a poet, I'm a clinical psychologist, I'm a people advocate. I love um, the idea of people having their best lives at work, whether it's busy, whether they're in high-functioning positions or not. And I created us therapy to provide mental health tips to help young professionals at work thrive. I've also read too many rom-coms for my own good. And I decided to do something about it by setting up story I only read rom-coms, where I just explore the books that I have read and hold it up against like some things that I see, whether in my class or in real life. I just want to compare how like rom-coms and romanticized situations have impacted our individual interaction. I'm a citrus. I like peanut butter ice cream. Too much chocolate, too many, too much cookies. And before I 
stack with it some. I'm going to stop here, but that's me in a nutshell. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, so tell us about because you're on ground in Lagos. Tell us about mm-hmm. before we jump into sort of the practical clinical tips on how we can cope. Tell us about what it was like being in Lagos over those few weeks and what the pulse of the city was like and the there was a sort of camaraderie among people um, at the time. What was that like? So at the beginning, it was, it started as a tweet, I think, um, with one incident leading to um, people protesting and I think FK wanted to raise funds for it and before you know it, it just grew into this whole collective um, agenda that everybody could identify with and it spilled from social media offline mm-hmm. and usually you'd see like a pocket of people here and there you see the activists you know chanting and then maybe a couple of people just trying to like gas them up from the background but the stories were too close to home for a lot of people and i think um we're just all tired of the off and on nature of the SARS incident because we had protested SARS to an extent online we had trended the hashtag but it was just like nothing was happening and then it was in 2020 where we had already lost a lot. So we're just like, you know what, we have your time today. I mean, I'm going to face you head on. And everybody came out in droves. At the beginning, it was I was just like staring at it on Instagram because I, I went, I think I went to the protest on the third day or so. I was just staring at it on social media and I saw like, what is going on? So on one hand, you see the anger, you would see the rage, you would see the sadness and the hurt, you know, especially amongst people that had like personal encounters with them. On the other hand, you would see the joy in it because the human emotion is very interesting because it was a floating in and out where anger and joy just laid side by side with each other and everyone was excited that yes, we are finally coming together to do something. And um, the one Saturday that that was quite um, significant, I think it was about two Saturdays before the Tuesday incident, they blocked the Lekki Equine Link Bridge and the toll gate. And it 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 was almost a carnival, but not a carnival because it was just, it was something. And it gave a sense of hope because it wasn't just, um, well, the people protesting, they were not like situated as a particular class, you know. It was, it cut across all the social economic status and it was just like, okay, so if these people are listening, these people that live in Ikoi, if they're listening and they're protesting with us, maybe, just maybe, their dads or their dad's friends or their dad's friend's friends will listen and something will happen and it change will occur. So the hope was very, very tangible. You could feel that pulse like throbbing in the air. And for once, the Gosans didn't care about traffic. They didn't care about the sun. The, all the anger was just channeled into this one thing. And I think that unity of voice like, gave a sense of like meaning to a lot of people. So it was like a high point for, for everyone. Yes, it came from a place of anger, but the payoff at the time was so good. 
and it don't give a sense of meaning. Like most people with clients, they're like, yes, I finally did something. We didn't see the results yet, but there was just like this. I'm doing something about it, and the, it was like an, an immediate cure for helplessness at the time. And then it happened where it just like plummeted. It's the most anticlimactic um, end to such. What would have been a very beautiful telling um, of that um, event, and I think it, it was such an overt way of taking away people's voices because you weren't just silencing the voices; you're taking away the lives, and we all have to watch. It. And I don't think I can fully describe what that night was like. I remember them calling for the curfew and the fear that came out. And everybody was just like, go home, go home, go home. And then even me, I was just like, hey, bro, please go home. Everybody was like really screaming, oh, we'll go there, we'll go there. And then on, the, on one hand, you want to admire the courage and you want to admire the tenacity. On the other hand, there was just this fear that, hi, these people. And it happened and we watched it. And the sense of hope, the sense of meaning, the, like all the, what's the word now? Almost hope capital that had been accumulated for the past two weeks. It, everything got spent in one night. So that itself was draining. And the fact that we had to watch it live, it's, it, it's one of those occurrences that you hear, you know how people will talk about opening a letter bomb and then we're like, ah, Nigeria we used to be bad back in the day. You know, those military detectors, they used to be bad back in the day. Nobody ever thought that would happen in 2020 because we're quite sheltered from a lot of these um, epic incidences. But yeah, um, so that was, that was how it felt like. And the next day after that, there was just a, the, the fear and the anger was, it took over everything. There was just no space for hope. It, it, it was like the hope that was gotten over Tamina had to fight to maintain a survivor of it. So that's just how it was in Lagos. And to an extent, it hasn't really gone because, you know, you want to continue living life and then you remember that 20, 10, 20 happens and then you just pause and like, I can't believe. So, yeah, that's it. Yeah, and you know, so you just said something and you said that um, you want to continue living life and then you remember that 2010, 20 happened. And I think that is something that has happened to so many people because even when a lot of the protests started and it was still very peaceful and, you know, no one had really gone through that experience yet, people were already mm -hmm. changing the way they shared on social media. So a lot of the content creators on social media were changing. They weren't doing the normal you know, beauty content or whatever, people were being called out for being silent if, if they were yeah. being silent. And then that day, that, that evening happened and it shook everybody. Even, you know, we, we, we you know, for the podcast as well, like we record well in advance and we schedule everything and it's, autom it's all automated. I had to go in mm -hmm. and change a lot of the automation and just pause everything and be like, you know, we, we can't do anything because it was so much. And so many of us were watching. Yeah. I was one of the people that was watching. And then the following morning, we were told, oh, it didn't happen. And there was this thing of, no, but we know what we saw with our own eyes. 
Mm-hmm. And people then started getting more angry. And there was a lot of this feeling, uh, we were talking about it earlier, of feeling numb, of feeling mm-hmm. so many emotions all at the same time and not yeah. knowing what to do with it. You know, I reached out to mm-hmm. so many of my friends that night, you know, I hope you're okay, I hope your family is okay. And so many people, first of all, could not even respond because it was just too much. People were not able to mm-hmm. go into work the following day. People that had still been going to work because it was it was just so much trauma, so much anxiety. And now we are all trying to get back to normalcy. How can mm-hmm. we do that without one forgetting? Because I think the drive that what happened can give us to create a change is still extremely important. But then how can we go forward with the memory of that without allowing that anxiety to paralyze us, which is a situation where a lot of people still are at this point. Hmm. I think um, the first thing that we have to realize is the impact of that day wouldn't go anytime soon. What we would need to learn is how to live with it. So, there wouldn't be at least any point in time now where you remember 2010, 20, and then you don't even like that as usual. You might pause and just reflect on it. You might even cry about it. The idea is to be functional while you grieve that process. It's, I, I think, I mean, like 9-11 happened how many years ago? And when you think about it, you feel like there'll still be that calmness, like, yeah, that actually happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be the significance of that day mm-hmm. with us. We just need to like, create space for it where it wouldn't, it's almost like a guest in your house. You know, there's just a room there. You keep it there. You continue doing your daily activity, but you know that there's a guest in your house that you would have to keep after at some point. So that would just be like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily, I don't think we'll get over it anytime soon. And that is also okay. Mm-hmm. To be honest, that's also okay because life happens to us and it inter it, it, it um interrupts our daily living and sometimes we just have to like deal with that go with that mm-hmm. as we move on. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah, so that's like it's that. And what about the anxiety? So a lot of us are afraid, a lot of us are numb. Some people are still not able to even talk about what happened. How can we then start knowing that, like you said, that it's like having a guest in your house, but you can't really ignore the guest. You have to continue doing all the things that you're doing, but at some point, you will have to confront the guest. You will have to feed the guest. So how do we meet our anxieties and our fears face-to-face without breaking down completely? Mm. Um, you might need to grade well, it depends on the impact of that day on you. For the people that watched it happen, it might be too traumatizing to actually recount the event again from the start. And at the beginning, that might not necessarily be your goal. We might actually need to set emotional milestones for you in like being able to navigate that experience. Right, and for other people that maybe even lost somebody there again, the therapeutic process for that is very different, and it's very different from someone that just heard about it. And yeah, 
Um, I didn't watch it. I refused to watch it. And that was so deliberate. On one hand, I feel like there's um, a, sense, it's a certain kind of connection to the day that I may have missed out on. But on the other hand, the fallout from that again is something that I wasn't sure that I needed to manage after that, knowing that I had time. So um, for people that can't talk about the day, emotional grading might be the best thing. You might need to go through this with a therapist again, like um, maybe just think about what happened, but in the most innocuous sense of the um, words, like you don't need to tell us about everything that just that went on. Um, can you just say that this tends to happen? Is that a good start? Um, is it something that you would need to like breathe through or get some techniques to walk through it through? So by emotional grading, I mean like you would just like measure maybe today maybe talk about ten percent of the day or maybe 5% of the day, then 10% of the day, then 20% of the day, until you can fully recount the incidents without it breaking it down. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by grading. Um, mm-hmm. But for people that feel numb, what um, one of the things that I practice is um, acceptance commitment therapy. And there's this thing called dropping anchor. It's a grounding exercise where you pay attention to your environment, to your external world. You notice what is happening around you, like in the present. Because one of the things that happens after a traumatic incident is that you are fused to the past or you're fused to the future. When you're fused to the past, you can't necessarily let go of it enough to be functional in your daily living. So we want you to be present here and now. Like what is around you? Is there a fan blowing? Is there a internet not working? Like what what can you feel? What is the texture of what you're sitting on? Then actually feel it, like engage your senses. So you're de- you're taking deep breaths, you're exhaling, and then you're noticing. We call it noticing because a lot of times you you can pass a street a street fifty times, and then one day I don't know if you, you do you, that has happened to that one day you just say a random view this thing up, and then you're like, where did this come from? So that day you actually notice that did it. So that's what we're now telling you to do that. Notice your environment. Like, huh, when did this new thing happen here? What is happening around you here and now? And then when you do that, you now move into your inner world. So notice your thoughts. Notice your emotion. What are the dominant thoughts happening there? What do you actually feel? Name them. So do you feel overwhelmed? Name it. Do you feel sad? Do you feel angry? So not necessarily doing anything to change it, but being able to name it shows you that you are accommodating all of this emotion and this is you walking through all of this emotion and there's no danger happening while you're walking through this emotion. So when you understand that there's no danger happening, that response, that anxiety response that is really an adaptive response basically, it just sits to like a processing mode that okay now that I know that I'm not in danger there's no emergency here I can now breathe and relax and then the moments will pass does that make sense so it's it's um it's like a grand exercise you notice your environment your external world you notice your inner world your thoughts your emotions I always like suggest that they maybe write it down for those already in therapy, they might have some of the skills needed to engage with this thought. But if you don't have the skills, just like notice it and write it down and know that you are seeing yourself 
noticing your environment, you're seeing yourself speaking yourself, you're seeing yourself engaging with yourself, you're, you're engaging with your world around you. And when you know that that is happening, you know that you're not in this dramatic place, you're not in the, you're not the lucky to escape. You're not, it's no, it's no longer 2010, you are here and now, and you're present here and now, and there's no emergency to breathe and then move past that point. That is amazing. And you know, that grounding exercise that you were talking about, it's like um, that five, four, three, two, one um, thing as well. Yeah. It's about yeah. making those things and paying real close attention to it as well. And I think sometimes we, when we're feeling so overwhelmed with so many things, mm -hmm. we try to mm -hmm. engage in activities that don't require much of our consciousness or much of mm -hmm. our mindfulness. So, we um, either watch a lot of TV and just, you know, stay on the sofa and just keep watching TV because you don't need to engage with it or you just continue mm -hmm. thing, or you mm -hmm. avoid contact with people or sometimes you are feeling so many things that you want to control what you're feeling. So you, you know, do excessive, excesses of things that trigger emotions, so whether that is seeking sexual partners or seeking a lot of exercise or seeking har harmful behaviors as well, just to control how you're feeling. What would you say to mm -hmm. people who are in that stage, whether it is something as simple as sitting down and binging on Netflix or, you know, the extreme or of trying to seek out a controlled physical sensation? How would you say, and maybe not necessarily to the person in that situation, but maybe their friends or their family who can see that they are going into that pattern of coping, how would you say that friends and family should support someone in that stage? I think um, one of the first things that they can offer is empathy, mm -hmm. like validate their feeling, empathize with them, because at the root cause of it, nobody really wants to harm themselves. Even though it might be harmful to them, they might not know it. So like we call it like dancing with them in the darkness before dragging them slowly into the light. Mm -hmm. So you can say, I understand how you feel. I understand that you need to distract yourself with this task. I understand that you feel that you need to call this person for like some Netflix and chill. I also understand that it might be an overwhelming time for you. So like sit with them with, with them for a bit and that would actually get their attention before you can now say, however. Um, do you think that engaging with this activity will take you towards the goal for healing through this situation? And then when you now like, so by sitting with them and giving them your sort of unconditional positive regard, some non-judgmental attention, some validation, they know that you are on their side. They know that you know that they don't want to harm themselves. And then you can also offering do you want to consider like this breathing technique that I learned? Do you want to consider like journaling for a bit? Do you want to take a walk with me? Can I take a walk with you for a bit? And this is why this, so these exercises will help because if people don't know the benefit of something, they'll be like, ah, you've come again with one of these years. And it's like, no, when you take a walk, this is the benefit. Um, it calms you down. Research has shown that it helps with anxiety. Or in general, your thoughts, it helps you like process it better because it's not just clouded in your head. You cannot track like the things that you are experiencing and you can come back to revisit it later. So they, when they understand their experiences and when you say their experiences to them, they know that they are heard and they are 
seen, they are felt, and then they can now like engage with you on it. Yeah, that is amazing. I really like that. You know, you said making sure that you empathize with them, making sure that you also name the feeling that they are identifying with, dancing yeah. in the darkness before drawing them out to the light. Because I think sometimes yeah. we feel that we are in the light and somebody is in the darkness. Yeah. We go in yeah. with a huge porch. And obviously, when you mm-hmm. realize that someone is in the dark, the first thing that they do is that they chill. Exactly. And, exactly. And, and so you can't, it's going to make them run away as opposed to recognizing mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. that is actually positive. Mm-hmm. Really, really, really mm-hmm. love that. And what about mm-hmm. our parents' generation and the generation of our grandparents? Because I don't know if you saw the um, interview that Arise did with um, Mr. Pittyside, Atedo Pittyside, and he was talking mm-hmm. about how, you know, the older generation has not been extremely supportive of the younger generation who were really the pioneers of this movement. And he was giving a lot of mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and he's a very highly respected person and a lot of people resonated with what he was saying. But I think their generation mm-hmm. suffered though. So they're mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Had significant trauma. Um, and, mm-hmm. and there's this culture of silence in African culture where we don't talk about bad things. We also don't talk about good things that are too enjoyable, like sex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't about, we don't talk about mental health because it's a taboo. And so that generation went through their own traumas. They, they also protested and were shot and murdered. And like you said about um, um, letter bombs as well, you know, they also had their delegivas and they also had their cancer reviewers that were, you know, murdered. And they also had these hopes that were also dashed by the environments that they were in and the leaders that they had, but they didn't talk about it. And so a lot of us in our generation who are not aware of what they went through feel as though well, it's your fault. And if you guys had spoken up, we wouldn't be in this situation. But they also were forced mm-hmm. into violence because they tried. How, yeah. how do we then, number one, give them empathy to say, okay, this is what it must have felt like for you. I recognize that actually how I'm feeling, you must have felt this way as well when you were in your 30s before you started having children. And then how do we also get them to start telling us their stories so that we are also empowered to figure out a way to make a change? Hmm. Hmm. How do we um, empathize with them? I think by understanding that coping mechanisms differ. So we are very woke. We are such a woke generation. We understand mental health. We know the language of these things. You know, while the process was going on, people were setting up yoga and then they were doing like mental health things. And in many ways, they were the reason why we are able to do that. We are coping with mental health and we know the language of this. There's a lot of self-care floating around. But at that time, yeah, uh, right now, as we're talking, one of the things that came to mind was their coping mechanism was probably religion mm-hmm. because that's what they had access to. So they prayed a lot. Mm-hmm. They would go to church like 50 times easy because like that is the one thing that they could cling to. They may not have had therapists. I mean, therapists as well at what time. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? Their coping mechanism could also have been education. 
that is why if you tell your your father that you want to drop out of school, it's like, are you okay? Do you understand that it is your only way out? Because when you get educated, you have money. When you have money, you have access. And when you have access, you can probably leave wow. and then have an option that I did not have as a father mm-hmm. or I did not have as a mother. So it's like, when you say you're dropping out of school, they're not hearing, I'm dropping out of school to post my dream. They're hearing, I'm dropping out of school, therefore I'm going to be trapped here. Wow. Or I'm dropping out of school, therefore what happened to me is going to happen to you as well. And then their fear response will now be what you now you now see their fear response that like, oh my parents are too strict, my parents don't you know, and then everybody now starts saying the typical African parents are African parents are like African parents have gone through some shit and they don't want you to go through something. That's their coping mechanism. So when we put it within the context of how have they killed or how have they attempted to heal? Because again, nobody really wants to harm themselves. They would try to heal the best way they know how. And at the time, it was probably silence because silence kept them alive. Mm-hmm. Silence was their form of healing. Silence was their form of moving on. At the time, it was probably religion. At the time, it was probably family. Because people that lived alone in such a bottom area, they probably did not survive. And again, community has always been an adaptive field. So they will have kids, they will get married, and then they will also tell you that you should get married too, so that you will not be alone. So that Nigeria tells the kids, you need to have a husband that will protect you because that is probably what protected me at this time. Mm. So like, name it, but just don't like say it in isolation of separating religion and then parents are saying, these people are just doing the most. Like, understand the significance of some of their actions in context to the trauma that they have experienced. Then you can empathize because if you don't understand what they are doing, you will just say that so isolated into them and then we'll just betray now the African friends. And I will like, I give my friends a lot of a lot of shit for what they do, and I understand it as a string, but still when empathy really comes from knowing that person, knowing the backstory. When you know the backstory of a lot of people that you even hate. A lot of times, all the heroes that we empathize with on TV or the anti-heroes that we empathize with on TV is because you know that, oh, he lost his mother as a child. That's why he's doing this. That is what empathy does. You know the backstory first and know why. So when you know why, then you can, you cannot empathize with them. And then two, lead with that. Like, lead with that. Start from their own. Again, it starts from dancing with them in the darkness. Like, ask, start with one question. What do they like? What do they enjoy? What is their language like? And again, you don't want to re-traumatize them. So grading is also going to be super important. I'm not Igbo, but amongst my Igbo friends, I've heard that a number of their older relatives do not want to talk about the Biafra war. And they might not even know why they don't want to talk about it. They might not know that there's something called re-traumatizing. They might not know things like that, but it could be re-traumatizing. you probably have to create an environment where they will feel safe enough to talk about some of these things and then lead with one question or half a question a day. If they are okay talk, um, stopping for that, they then stop for that. Because you can't like um, make them pay for these stories with, at the expense of their mental health as well, even if they do know that they are paying for it at the expense of their mental health. So like just ease into it. First, lead with empathy. Create a safe environment. A safe environment can be maybe even going to church with them and then using what the pastor said, something, something about Gideon and the walls of Jericho, something, 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 and then just like travel slowly into this story. They don't know where they're walking into, but they know that, okay, within the context of God and all of these things, I am safe. Therefore, I can talk about this thing. 
Do you understand? So when you create a sense of thinking, when you emphasize them by knowing their story and contextualizing it well for them, they might be a bit more open. And you do like like measure it. If they are okay stopping for that day, please stop. Like and then another day you pick it up. Oh my goodness, that was amazing. That I think that was actually fantastic because we, our gener- we, we are harsh on our parents, and um, mm-hmm. we are, and we are harsh on them often because we see them just as our parents. We don't see them as human beings who have had their own issues, or yeah. or and you know I was talking to someone recently and she was saying oh that sometimes we have our we have issues with the marriages of our parents or our aunties or our uncles. But actually, if we stop seeing them from the child adult point of view and start seeing them yeah. as, if my boyfriend did this to me, am I going to react in the same way my auntie did? Yeah. 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 But because your viewpoint is that of child adult and you're expecting them to know better and do better, mm-hmm then you don't actually empathize with them in the appropriate way. And so you're then extremely harsh, extremely harsh. And yeah. I really love how you said about the things that they used to cope to survive. And yeah. then also how to draw them out to talk about things by being the one to take responsibility of creating that safe space. Because if mm-hmm. you want to hear the stories from people who have been silent about it, then we need to try to create an environment for them to be able to tell those stories and using religion yeah. and faith and piggybacking on things that they're comfortable with is such mm-hmm. an amazing idea in terms of them growing up in terms of them drawing that, yeah. out that information i really really love that and you know that brings me to something that was a bit controversial at the time of 2010 mm-hmm. um a lot of people seemed to be coping by questioning the protesters that were still at the gates. And so, mm. um, you know, there were people arguing and, you know, I had to leave some WhatsApp groups setting because people were saying, yes, why were they still there? They called a curfew, mm. why were they still there? Yes, they were sitting silently and singing their national anthem and just waving their flags. But why were they still there when they called a curfew? And one of the things I was initially trying to say in terms of arguing was also, well, People didn't get home. I know family members and friends who tried to leave work at 12 o'clock when they called curfew, but could not get home and were stuck on either side of the bridge. And mm-hmm. but then obviously the protesters were there. What do you say to people who were using that as their arguments and why were they there? Why did they wait? I think I would ask them a question as well that why do you think them being there is worthy of them being killed? Mm. You know, because sometimes we have thoughts in our mind and we express them without fully um, interrogating those thoughts. Mm. And to be honest, um, in making sense of a situation, you know, a lot of people don't want to like fully think that people can be evil. Mm-hmm. that you can just see someone and shoot them. You want to say, okay, there's a cause and then therefore there's a reaction to it. So that, and then like you have to get comfortable with villainizing these people because number one, they killed an innocent person. It might be difficult to wrap your mind around that, but it happened. And two, yes, even if it was a crime, 
break that down to to me. Do you think it was worthy of being killed? And then a lot of time when they sit down and like try to like re- like reason it, they'll say no, but yes, but and then they would because again they have engaged with it, but. I think it would just be to respond to the question, like interrogate that thought that you have now, that question that you have now, you know, these emotions that you have now. Do you think sitting there, singing the national anthem is what you have been killed? Explain, thank you, Mark. And, um, yeah, yeah, I think that that is, I think that is the thing as well, isn't it? It's challenging the, sometimes the things, the way we are thinking, and the things that we're saying and how we're communicating it as well because and i think some and sometimes you know when you're the one on the receiving end of people saying those kind of things you're just so overwhelmed that how can somebody be saying such a thing and you don't have the words to engage with them because you're still dealing with the fact that oh my god this happened and i, I don't yeah. want to talking to, i don't want to be talking to you about this thing that you're saying because i think it's absolutely insane um, so mm-hmm. follow us another time. Today is not the day um, to do that. Mm-hmm. As we're rounding up now, what would you say to people about one taking space and time for themselves, and also advocating for themselves? I think sometimes, especially in our culture, Black culture worldwide and African culture worldwide, we don't always advocate for ourselves and for our mental health to say this is a toxic environment and I must leave because it's doing me harm. What would you say to us about, about doing that? And I think even also as women as well, I think sometimes we just continue and just continue and there's this rhetoric of being a strong Black woman that has been overflowed mm. and, need, and really does need to be broken down and justified completely. But what would you say to us about advocating for our own mental mental well-being? Hmm. There's this um, four-step exercise that I always recommend. I don't think I've done a conversation without fully without giving this exercise, and it's a how I feel exercise. So, do you know why I give that? Is because validating how you feel first to yourself goes a long way in advocating for yourself to other people because there would always be counter arguments but the same way that, like a lawyer would have done their background work gathered evidence for it pros and cons and everything for it and then they will go to the court and then present their case in the same way you would need to first validate your emotions gather evidence for emotions so that when you talk about it to other people whatever counter um, argument they have you have prepared for it because one you believe that how you feel is valid and you know why your your feelings are valid. You know why what you want is valid. So the how I feel exercise is one. I feel, so again, name your emotions. I feel happy. I feel sad. I feel overwhelmed. I feel irritated and sad yet happy. I feel, you know, like dive as deep as you want to dive. Like set all the emotions that you feel side by side. Number two, I feel this way because I feel happy because I had a good conversation with Abu Doctor today, but I feel sad because the weather is hot and Lagos life is just annoying. You know, like actually name the emotion, name why you feel the emotion. And then even if you don't even know why, sit with it and then like dive in because you've started the exercise, it would give you like room to explore why you feel the way you feel. And then number three, this is what I did about it. So once that is like situated in your mind, 
when you present your case to somebody and say, hey, when you called Mr. Sanson in yesterday, I felt, again, how do you feel? I felt this way because this, 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 that. When the person goes, oh, you're not overreacting. It's like, like, actually, I'm not because this is why I felt the way I felt. So that, so I think when it comes to advocating for yourself with people, one, validate how you feel to yourself. And then know, and two, know that it's a muscle that you're building. So especially if you're used to putting yourself in the back burner, if today you talk about that tomorrow, you're like, I'm going to let it slide. Don't beat yourself up too much because again, it's something that you're learning. So if you're, if you're the type that will start a conversation and then when they push, you will now stop after five minutes. Maybe the next time, like extend it to 10 minutes, like just like try to explain yourself a bit more for that and then a bit more and a bit more. So validate your emotions, know that it's a muscle that you're building and then like make it like a gradual process. And after you're done, you can even like reward yourself that, hey, I spoke up in this meeting today to my boss about this thing. So I'm going to get myself peanut butter. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That is that is amazing. Um, and I think that is really useful um, because I think sometimes we let a lot of things slide in our friendships, in our relationships the way people speak to us as well, especially mm-hmm. as women, because we're also trying not to be too, we don't want to look too feisty and we don't want to look this way and we don't want to be called the B word. And, you know, we're trying to navigate a lot of these things, but then it then becomes detrimental for our own mental health if we are not speaking up for ourselves in the spaces that we are going into um, on a regular basis. That has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much, Anu, for joining us on taboo doctor today it has been such a wholesome conversation with so many tips on how to cope on how to relate with each other on how to also relate with our parents which obviously is one of the most significant relationships um, that any one of us that any one of us has um, as well regardless of that because you can choose to have a partner or choose not to have a partner we all came from somewhere so whether that's your family of origin or your adopted family we, we all we all came from somewhere so thank you so so much where can our listeners find you online uh for, thank you for having me first of all you can find me on one us therapy that is us therapy or follow me on instagram and twitter at hello anu that is hello a-a-n-u that is fantastic thank you so much thank you for having me thank you for joining us on today's episode i hope you have enjoyed it as much as we have make sure you leave us a rating or two on itunes and share the episode with a friend or two who have not heard about us before and please send us all your questions suggestions and thoughts at hello at taboodoctor.com We definitely want to hear from you. Subscribe to our newsletter as well and follow us on social media. Until next time, stay safe and keep slicing health fact away from health fiction.